Six Months That Changed the World, the Paris Peace Conference of 1919. Lecture 4, The League of Nations and Mandates. The last lecture looked at some of the forces with which the peacemakers had to deal when they met in Paris, at the revolutionary forces set off by the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia in 1917, and at the rising tide of ethnic nationalism, which was going to make setting the borders in so much of the center of Europe so extraordinarily difficult. As this went on, as, as the peace conference went on, Woodrow Wilson became increasingly concerned that what to him was the most important issue of all, and that was a League of Nations with its whole hope of a better world, was somehow going to be sidelined. Wilson himself had not intended to stay in Paris for very long. He had come initially in, in end of December 1919, thinking that a preliminary peace conference would meet for about three weeks to hammer out the terms uh, that the Allies were going to present to Germany, and that he would then be able to go back to the United States. He was beginning to realize, and others were beginning to realize, that that probably wasn't going to be as quick as everyone had thought. But what he wanted to make absolutely sure was that as the discussions began in Paris at the end of January 1919, that the League of Nations should be top of the agenda. He was very annoyed, in fact, in one of the first meetings of the Council of Ten, that larger body that met until the smaller Council of Four came into existence, that at one of the first meetings of the Council of Ten, the French produced an agenda for the peace conference, which had the negotiation of a League of Nations fairly far down the list of things that had to be done, and had the German peace terms, which to the French, of course, were the most important thing of all, right up at the top. And so Wilson insisted that the League be the first matter of business at the Paris Peace Conference. He himself undertook to chair the commission, which was going to draw up the League's constitution, the League's constitution, in fact, and, and again, this was Wilson's idea, was going to be called a covenant. It had a quasi-religious quasi sound to it, and I think Wilson felt that it was something that was quasi-religious, that the League of Nations would be a pledge that human beings made to each other that they would no longer resort to war to settle their differences. And so in this lecture, what I want to look at is Woodrow Wilson's leadership on this issue of the League of Nations at his work in the League of Nations Commission, which drew up the covenant of the League of Nations, and some of the debates that came up over the League of Nations. Because the debates over the League of Nations, in a way, echo debates which we've been having ever since about how to settle international issues. Let me say something again about Woodrow Wilson. I've already talked about him a bit, but I think it's important to understand something of what the man was like. I mean, in some ways, I, I find him intensely sympathetic. In some ways, I think I wouldn't have liked him at all. He was someone who had a big picture. I mean, of all the, the major leaders in Paris, much more than David Lloyd George and much more, much more than Georges Clemenceau, Wilson really had a vision. And he had the big vision. He wanted to make a better world. He wanted, as I've mentioned before, to get rid of the old-style diplomacy, which he saw as a bad thing. The old-style diplomacy for Wilson involved secret deals, secret arrangements, involved giving away pieces of land to other nations, putting people of one nationality under the rule of another nationality. All this he thought was bad. He thought the war in Europe had been started really because the European nations were playing the old games of power politics in the old ways. And he wanted to make sure that this wasn't going to happen again. He wanted the United States to take the leadership in trying to build a new kind of diplomacy, a new way of doing things, and to build a new world. 
he didn't spell out his ideas very clearly before the peace conference started, and I think that was a weakness. Wilson argued when people said, all right, what is your idea for League of Nations? You've talked about it. What are your ideas? Wilson said, well, it will emerge. I don't want to spell it out too clearly. And I think that was a mistake in a way. I mean, if you want to set up international organizations, you should actually think out some of the details because the details often can be crucial. Wilson assumed that the League would continue to shift and change. When he sat in the League Commission drawing up the League Covenant, he said, you know, we will do the best we can today, but the people who come after us will change things, make it different. And I think that was a mistaken view because once you set up a structure, in fact, it becomes much more difficult to change it. There was another conviction that Wilson had, and I think that in a way was also perhaps a mistaken conviction. He was convinced that the people of Europe and possibly of the world at large were with him. He had an almost mystical sense that he had a bond with the people, a bond which other leaders like Clemenceau and Lloyd George didn't have. And in a way, that was a curious belief to have because Lloyd George and Clemenceau were both democratically elected leaders. Wilson himself was democratically elected. His democratic majority was not, in fact, that great. And so if Wilson was going to talk about a bond with the people and how he understood the people and how he expressed the voice of the people, I think perhaps he was making rather a large assumption here. Now, you can understand why he did it, because when he arrived in Europe, he was greeted as something of a savior. He arrived, his ship docked at Brest, a port on the, on the Atlantic coast of France, and it's said that virtually every living creature, right down to the dogs, came out to greet him. As his train pulled out of Brest, heading towards Paris, it moved towards Paris, and that night, as the train went through the French countryside, about three in the morning, Wilson's doctor got up, looked out the window, and there along the tracks were a lot of Europeans standing, French people standing there, waiting to see President Wilson's train go by. In Italy, people noticed that Italian soldiers had, next to the picture of the Madonna, because, of course, many of them were good Catholics, a picture of Woodrow Wilson. They would cross themselves in front of the Madonna, and they would cross themselves in front of Wilson as well. And so Wilson perhaps was entitled to think that he had this tremendous rapport with the European public. In fact, he was probably wrong to think that they saw eye to eye with him. People had all sorts of hopes of Wilson. Some people in Europe thought he was going to give them revenge. Some people in Europe thought he was going to give them a new country. They didn't all share his vision, but Wilson was to be convinced that they did. The Europeans did have a certain sympathy for Wilson's ideas, as it's often been said, and historians still debate about it, whether the Europeans really bought into Wilson's vision of a new sort of world. And I think many of them did. Many Europeans had seen exactly what war could do, exactly how dreadful it had been. And I think they did believe that Wilson was perhaps talking about something very important here. Perhaps a common European view, though, was summed up by Georges Clemenceau, who said, I like the League, but I don't really believe in it very much. Anyway, we'll come back to that historian's debate because I think it's a very interesting one. As Wilson began to negotiate the League, he relied very much on a man who was very, very close to him. And this was a man called Colonel Edward House. Edward House was not, in fact, a real colonel. It was one of those honorary titles. He was a Texan, a rich Texan, and he'd never really had to work for a living. What he had done was become a broker. He loved the back rooms of power. He was a Democrat. And when Wilson began to make a name for himself as, a president, as president of Princeton University and then as the Democratic governor of New Jersey, House picked on Wilson as a future president and threw in his lot with Wilson. Wilson came to rely on him tremendously. He liked House. He believed that he and House saw eye to eye on virtually everything. 
When the war was coming to an end in Europe, Wilson sent House off to act as his representative with the Europeans, gave him full powers, and when House came to him before he left the United States and said, can you give me some directions, Wilson said, I don't need to do so. You know how I think. You are, in effect, and he said this on a number of occasions, you are my alter ego. And so when the League of Nations Commission was set up, it in fact met in Colonel House's room. Colonel House had a very attractive sitting room at the Crillon Hotel, a very posh hotel in the middle of Paris. It, it's still there, incidentally. And the rooms that Colonel House occupied, in fact, are still there. The, the League of Nations Commission met there, and House sat beside Wilson the whole time, helping to steer the League of Nations Commission in what he and Wilson felt were the right direction. Now, I mentioned historians' debates about the League, and, and, and there were a couple of debates, which I'd just like to say a little bit more in detail about. Some historians have argued that just as much of the peace settlement, the peace, or just as much of the peace settlements in Europe were shaped by fears of, of revolution, so too Wilson and House came up with the idea of a League of Nations as an answer to Lenin's vision of a new, entirely communist world. And yes, there is something in that, just as there is something in the idea that the peace settlements were shaped by a fear of, of revolution spreading. Wilson and House were very much aware of Lenin's statements coming out of Moscow, very much aware that the communists were posing, in a sense, a challenge to Wilson's liberal internationalist view of how the world should be run. And so, yes, I think they had it in mind that a League of Nations would be an alternative to Lenin's vision. But I don't think they knew in detail what Lenin's views were. It was still very, very difficult to find out anything that was going on in Russia. And I think they would have promoted these ideas anyway. I mean, the ideas of a league certainly predated the Leninist revolution in Russia in 1917. The other historian's debate, which I've referred to already, but I'd just like to spend a bit more time on, is this whole notion of a gulf between the Americans and Europeans over the notion of a league and indeed over the whole idea of a new diplomacy being promoted by Wilson. You sometimes get a picture, and it was a picture that was promoted very much by Wilson's press secretary, Ray Stannard Baker, who later on wrote an account of the Paris Peace Conference in which Baker argued that Wilson essentially was the new world, seeing things in a new way. Wilson was prepared to bring a very good thing to the world, come sailing across the Atlantic, and there to greet him on the European shores are the Europeans, black-hearted, sunk in their old ways, determined not to change, wanting to do things in the old way, wanting to go back to the old power politics. Now, this is a view which has tended to resonate down through the decades, but I think there's actually not that much in it. Wilson's views about a new world, about a new world order, about a new way of doing things, about the need for something like the League of Nations, was shared by a great many Europeans. Europeans had been talking long before the First World War about how to make a better world, how to find alternative ways of settling disputes beyond going to war. Such Europeans had generally been on the liberal side. Many of them were on the left. Many of them were pacifists. But there had been really significant support in Europe for such measures as limiting war, limiting arms, for example. A number of very important conventions had been held at The Hague before the First World War. Europeans had been talking about alternative ways of settling disputes short of going to war. They had discussed such issues as an international court of justice, as compulsory arbitration. I mean, all these ideas which Wilson was also sympathetic to, had been around in Europe for a long time before the First World War. 
on the extreme left or, or, the, or the more radical left, there had been an attempt, in fact, to coordinate unions and political parties to resist war. A body had been set up called the Second International, which included a lot of European left-wing parties and unions. And the Second International had said repeatedly that if a general European war came, its members would go on strike and thus, in fact, make a war probably impossible. As it happened, when the First World War came, the Second International fell to pieces. But the idea was certainly there in Europe in various forms that there must be alternative ways of finding a war. Europeans also could look at the 1914-18 war. I mean, they knew very well what war could do. They were living with its consequences. And so the idea that Europeans were resistant to Wilson's ideas, I think, simply is not right. Yes, there were certainly skeptics like Clemenceau, but even Clemenceau thought a League of Nations would be a good thing if it could actually be made to work. But a lot of Europeans were very enthusiastic about Wilson's ideas. Harold Nicholson, who was a young British diplomat in Paris, said, we came to Paris determined to build a new world. We came with high purpose. We looked to President Wilson as someone who was one of us. And so historians will continue to debate, to debate this, but my own view is that, in fact, there wasn't a great gulf between the Americans and the Europeans on this. There were certainly differences of opinions, but they weren't particularly European or American differences of opinions. At any rate, the League Commission met in Colonel House's rooms at the Creon Hotel, and to everyone's amazement, it managed to drop the League Covenant in under a month. I mean, this was really working very hard. Wilson worked day in, day out. And remember, he was also going to the various other meetings that he had to do. And the Covenant was basically finished by February 14th, 1919. There are a few details to hammer out, and I'll talk about those later on. But the basic shape of the League had been set by the middle of February 1919. What was it going to look like? Well... In some ways, it looked rather like the United Nations of today. The United Nations obviously learned quite a bit from the League. The League was to have an executive council, and that made sense to carry on the League's business when the General Assembly wasn't meeting. The executive council would have five permanent members, and this is what was meant to happen. It didn't, as we shall see. The five permanent members were meant to be Great Britain, France, Italy, Japan, and the United States. And then there would be four members elected by the General League membership. What that meant was that the Executive Council of the League would always have a majority of the permanent members, five permanent members, four elected members who would rotate through. The League would also have its own secretariat. It was decided that the headquarters would be in Geneva, and that is in fact what happened, and there would be a General Assembly, rather like the UN General Assembly. In addition to that, there was going to be an international labor organization. Its structure was also being negotiated in Paris at the time, which would be attached to the League, as well as a number of other bodies that eventually emerged over the years. Now, as the League Covenant was drawn up, there were a number of issues which caused considerable debate. Perhaps the most divisive one, at least the one I'm going to talk about today, was whether or not the League should have its own armed forces. The French seemed to have wanted something like a permanent military alliance, perhaps, well, not perhaps, but certainly directed against Germany, and they thought that that permanent military alliance should have its own forces, that there should be a League army. The British and the Americans disagreed. Both the British and the Americans thought they would never get a League with a permanent armed force through their own parliaments, or in the case of the Americans, through Congress. And so the French on that one were going to be defeated. 
Nevertheless, although the League didn't have its own armed forces, its covenant provided for a series of measures up to and including armed forces. If a nation committed aggression against another League member, the League could decide to classify that as aggression, to condemn the aggressor nation, and then to impose what were called sanctions. And these sanctions could go from mild economic sanctions right up to armed forces if League members chose to use it. And so by the middle of February, the basic outlines of the League had been established. Wilson was absolutely delighted. He presented the League covenant to the full meeting, to a full meeting of the peace conference, and then prepared to go back to the United States for a very brief period. I'll talk about that later on. Another issue, apart from armed forces, that came up in connection with the League and and which caused, again, a certain amount of dissension, was the whole issue of mandates. Now, the notion of a mandate was that more developed nations should have responsibility for less developed nations. And this is perhaps an idea that we, we don't really talk about much publicly these days, but it was a very 19th century sort of idea that some peoples are more advanced, more civilized, and that's how they talked in the 19th century, and they were still talking like this in Paris in 1919. Some nations are more developed than other nations, and that therefore they have a right and indeed perhaps an obligation to rule over the less developed nations. There were a number of these less developed, there were a number of these less developed nations or less developed peoples to be dealt with at Paris, mainly the German colonies, but also the Arab territories of the Middle East. There was also the question of what happened to some of the nations in the middle of Europe. But Wilson, interestingly enough here, said, I do not see Europeans as needing this sort of guidance. Wilson, remember, was a southerner and I think had certain views on race, but he certainly thought that the Arab peoples, um, Asian peoples, African peoples still needed the sort of guidance that more developed peoples such as the Americans and the British and the French could give them. Now, what was going to happen to the German colonies? Britain and France had assumed that they would more or less be parceled out in the old way as spoils of war. Wilson, of course, would not accept that. And the British and French, I think, recognized that there was no point running up against Wilson on this one. And so while they had been talking very cheerfully about who would take which colony, they now began to talk about their responsibility. And they began to talk about mandates. And what the idea of a mandate was, was that the League of Nations, this new body which was being set up, would take over bits of territory like the German colonies, the bits of the Ottoman Empire that were left over at the end of the war when their owners were defeated, and would hand them out to be managed by advanced nations. But these nations, when they took on the mandate, would be doing so really as agents of the League of Nations. Well, a lot of people said this was just the old-style imperialism under a new name. In fact, I think there was something important here. The idea was now written into international practice that peoples who were running, countries that were running other peoples, actually had a responsibility to those peoples. And so all the mandates that were given out, and a number were given out, as we shall see after 1919, the mandatory power, whether Britain or France or whoever, had to report to the League of Nations on an annual basis about how they were actually running those countries. Well, the British and French went along with this, but the British ran into a real problem. The British found that their dominions... I talked before about the British dominions, which parts of the British Empire, which had now become rather self-assertive and rather self-confident. The British dominions did not want mandates. They wanted outright colonies. And so Lloyd George, the British prime minister, found himself, to his embarrassment really, 
in a battle with his own dominions who was simply refusing to go along with the whole notion of mandates, was saying, nope, we want outright possession. Who were the dominions who were being particularly difficult? Well, Canada was not very difficult. Canada actually didn't have any territorial claims at the Paris Peace Conference, although occasionally, such was the mood of the times, Canadians toyed with the ideas of taking over a bit of territory here and there. But Canada really did not want conflict between Britain and the United States. I mean, that was the Canadians' worst nightmare. Canada, in its gloomiest moments, saw itself as having to fight if conflict between Britain and the United States ever got stirred up. Canada saw itself having to fight on the side of Britain and Japan against the United States, which was not an option it particularly wanted to follow for obvious reasons. So the Canadians were not really involved in this mandate struggle, at least not at first. The British dominions that really got involved in it were, first of all, South Africa. It had taken German Southwest Africa, the country we now know today as Namibia, and was determined to hang on to it and was not going to have the League of Nations dealing with it as a mandate, did not want to see the League of Nations involved in any way. Australia was exactly the same with German New Guinea and some of the other South German, some of the other German islands in the South Pacific it had taken, and New Zealand took the same stance with German Samoa which it had taken. They, in other words, opposed Wilson on this and were prepared to put pressure on the British government to oppose Wilson. The British, as I said, found it rather embarrassing. They did not want to confront the United States on this, but they found themselves really under pressure now from parts of their own empire. At any rate, after a great deal of back and forth, the British, with the help of Canada and with the help of the ubiquitous Colonel House, who, who loved to fix things up, managed to broker a deal. And the deal was basically basically fudged it a bit. Mandates were divided into three types. There were the A mandates, which were for countries which were virtually ready to rule themselves but would need some help for perhaps the next few decades, and those were mainly the Arab territories. There were the B mandates for territories which were far away from the mandated territories. So there were some bits of Africa which would be B mandates and would be run as mandates. And then there were the C mandates, which were those bits of territories near or next to the countries that were going to be looking after them, and they were to be run virtually as part of those countries. And so South Africa got a mandate, one of these C mandates, for German Southwest Africa, and it was able to run German Southwest Africa basically as though German Southwest Africa were part of South Africa itself. The Australian Prime Minister, Billy Hughes, who was a very cantankerous figure, who had not wanted any talk of mandates, finally gave in on this one. He said, well, the C mandate is basically like a 999-year lease, and so we'll accept it. And so the mandates were finally settled, at least as far as the German colonies were concerned. But they were going to come up again, and we will be talking about them again, because they're going to come up again in connection with German treaty areas in China and also for Britain and France and the Arab Middle East. So we'll look at those again. So the League of Nations and, and at least some of the contentious issues had pretty well been wound up by the middle of February. At that point, the major figures at the peace conference took a rest, in two cases voluntary and one case less voluntary. President Wilson went back to the United States. He was obliged to go back. The new Congress was opening and he had a number of political issues to deal with. And so he sailed back to the United States on what was a very rushed trip. I mean, he basically had a week going back, about a week and a bit in, in the United States, and then a week coming back to Europe. He could have mended fences with some of the Republicans, and alas, he didn't. He landed in Boston, which was the home of his great Republican opponent, Henry Cabot Lodge, who was leader of the Republicans in the Senate, 
And instead of trying to win him over and basically offended him, Wilson made it quite clear that he didn't want to consult Lodge, um, did not make any attempt to talk to him, and if anything, made Lodge an even more implacable enemy. And it was really going to hurt Wilson later on. Wilson was in a bad mood, I think. It, it, his health may not have been good by this point, but he made a number of really unnecessary statements. He went to see a new grandson. His daughter just had a baby, and he said the baby is just like an American senator. He has his mouth open and his eyes closed. And this was not tactful, and it was going to cost him dearly. David Lloyd George went back to London, where he also had a lot of business. He managed to deal with a lot of business in a very short time, also managed to deal with some of his own opposition People in England were beginning to criticize him for being too soft on the Germans. Clemenceau also had a rest, but in his case, it was not, an inf- not, not a voluntary rest. Clemenceau was coming out of his house in Paris one day, and a strange man, I think probably half crazy, an anarchist who had been waiting outside, dashed out, pulled out a gun, and shot Clemenceau, and managed to shoot him several times before he was finally wrestled to the ground. Clemenceau, very brave and very tough old man, was carried back into his house was operated on, although one of the bullets was going to stay in him until, in fact, he died. They couldn't get him out. And people who came to see him the next day found him sitting there and, I think, in inimitable Clemenceau fashion, making jokes. There was a nun who was, who was a nurse who was standing by him. And he said, well, you know, Prime Minister Clemenceau, I've prayed to the good Lord to help you recover quickly. And Clemenceau said if the good Lord were doing his job, he wouldn't have let me be shot in the first place. He also complained about the marksmanship of the man who'd shot him. He said, I'm appalled to think that a Frenchman is such a poor shot. But it was worrying, and a lot of people said that Clemenceau never really was quite on top of things after that. The bullets in him really took it out of him. Remember, he was 78 years old. Well, the peace conference was carrying on with Lloyd George away, with Clemenceau wounded, with Wilson back in the United States. Colonel House stood in for Wilson, and Arthur Balfour, the British Foreign Secretary, helped to carry things forward, and a number of the specific terms for the German peace began to be drawn up. And people were getting really rather discouraged. The attempted assassination of Clemenceau had, had shaken people a lot. There'd been an assassination of, of an, one of the, uh, another prime minister in Europe, the, the Portuguese prime minister. And so the fear of revolution, which was never too far from the surface, never too far below the surface, was there. And I think there was a sense that it was all simply taking too long people began to make rather sour and rather unhappy jokes that, for example, we're working to prepare um, another lasting war rather than a lasting peace. And so there was a sense that they were taking too long, too much still had to be done, agreement was too far apart. Having said that, people still, of course, as people will, manage to enjoy themselves. Paris was beginning to revive, the theaters were opening again, the racetrack was beginning to open again. People began to hold parties, perhaps not the very grand parties they'd had at other sorts of peace conferences, but things did begin to revive. But I think it's fair to say that the mood, as Wilson came back to to Paris in the middle of March 1919, was that things were not going ahead fast enough, and the thing that most people really thought they needed to deal with now was the German treaty. So we've dealt at least with the first stage of making the League of Nations, the drawing up of the League Covenant and the working out of the actual structure of the League. But of course, a lot more had to be done. The League had to be approved. Wilson insisted, because he thought the League was so important, that it be written into the German treaty. And so the first part of the treaty terms drawn up for Germany were in fact the Covenant of the League of Nations. Because it was a treaty, it therefore would eventually have to go through the American Senate. Um, under the U.S. Constitution, the Senate has to approve by a majority of two-thirds plus one, 
any treaty signed by the United States. And so when Wilson put the League covenant into the treaty with Germany, what he was doing was making sure that it would have to be approved by the U.S. Senate. And so drawing up the League was one matter, but we're going to have to come back to this story because actually getting it approved was, as it turned out, a very different matter. And so in the next lecture, that's what I'm going to be looking at, the German peace terms. After listening to Lecture 4, a student posed this question to Professor McMillan. Where did Wilson get the idea for the League of Nations? Let's listen to the professor's response. When he formulated his idea of the League of Nations, Wilson, I think, really got it from a number of sources. He was a political science professor originally, and I think he'd always had a great interest in civil structures, how you made things work, legal structures. He also had read a lot of the pre-war literature on different ways of organizing world affairs, on ways of limiting war, and so on. There were various ideas floating around during the war as well. The British set up a commission under someone called Lord Fillimore to look at possibilities of setting up a permanent League of Nations or Congress of Nations. General Smuts, the South African foreign minister, very great thinker, had also begun to express some of these ideas and play with them. Wilson, I think, therefore, did not entirely come up with the idea of a League of Nations on his own. He was able to draw on a lot of discussion that was going on at the time. When he talked about a League of Nations, however, Wilson refused to get very specific. He refused to say what he was thinking until after the war was over. I think partly because he was afraid that if he got too specific, people would begin to attack it. And so he came to Paris really without any very clear idea about a League of Nations, or hadn't, he hadn't expressed a very clear idea about a, League, about a League of Nations. And he jotted down some ideas, none of which were terribly thought out. And what he did in the end, I think, although he would never admit it, is he took over some of the ideas of others. General Smuts, the South African foreign minister, wrote a very, very persuasive document on how a League of Nations would look, and he presented it to Wilson and others. And Wilson, in fact, was very impressed with it and incorporated a lot of those ideas into his final proposal. And so Wilson certainly drew on others' ideas when he came up with the whole notion of a League of Nations and, and its whole structure. This ends Lecture 4. Remember to visit this course's webpage at www.modernscholar.com, where you'll find additional information about the lectures that you just heard.